let's try and narrow this down to the the MVP, the minimum viable product. What do you think you can launch your business on? And now, even more so with Instagram, you can literally launch a business with a single product and have success. You're listening to the Make It British podcast. I'm Kate Hills, and I'm on a one-woman mission to save UK manufacturing. I invite you to join me each week when I'll be sharing the stories behind some of the best British-made brands and UK manufacturers and offering you advice and tips for making in the UK. So let's crack on with the show. Hello and welcome to episode 127 of the Make It British podcast. On today's episode, I'm interviewing one of our Make It British members, a lovely lady called Amy Fettis, who runs a business called Aim Athleisure. Now, Amy first set the business up as her own brand, making luxury sportswear. But she soon realised that the mistakes that she'd made when setting up the brand could actually be used to help other businesses do the same. Amy now runs a production unit in Newcastle where she helps new brands to start and launch their collections by helping to make their samples and doing small production runs. But before we get on to the interview with Amy, I just want to tell you about something really exciting that we have got coming up at Make It British. So I'm going to start doing some live recordings of this podcast And the first one is going to be on Wednesday, the 29th of July. That's 2020 if you're listening to this in the future. So sorry, you'll have missed it. But if you're listening to this before Wednesday, the 29th of July, do try and come along to our live recording of this podcast, which is entitled How Do We Future Proof the UK Textile Industry? So I'm going to be joined by Scott Walton from Corny Digital and Richard Jessup from Gerber Technology, where we're going to look at how the UK textile industry can create less waste, increase sales and become more profitable. So if that sounds intriguing and you're interested in coming along, I'm going to pop a link to register in the show notes for this podcast, which you can find at makeitbritish.co.uk forward slash 127. Now on to the interview with Amy Fettis. So thank you so much for joining me today, Amy. Oh, it's a pleasure. Thank you for inviting me. It's really an honour to take part. I'm a big fan of your work. Thank you. Well, I'm a big fan of what you do, and I know that you provide a much-needed service. Do you want to tell the listeners what it is that you do at AIM's Leisure? AIM at Leisure, yeah, A-I-M. So, yeah, it started life as a brand um, Mm. four years ago. And I had a goal to create a lifestyle, um, fashion-led sportswear brand, just as the athleisure boom was really starting to um, develop. And what I actually found in doing that was that there was a service missing, which was taking a concept and an idea and developing it before jumping straight into the kind of stock um, uh, requirement, you know, before placing the big stock orders, um, because I was young, I was inexperienced, I didn't have a huge amount of capital, and I was nervous about making that big stock investment. So, um, if we, you know, kind of fast forward up to the present day, now what I do day to day is 
um, help other businesses and brands on a private label basis to go from having the concept to actually having a production ready sample and then also um, we do small batch production and we help to guide and handhold a little bit on bulk um, orders too. So what's your background originally then? Um, Have you always been in manufacturing? I haven't, no. Um, so my my skill set, I would say, lies within the kind of project management world. And um, I have a higher level apprenticeship in leadership and management. And that's an aspect that I'm really interested in developing teams and um, how you put an effective team together. Um, and that's something which kind of uh, really influences what I do now in terms of of how we bring all the different elements of that sampling and development process together, you know, the design, the machining, the um, uh, the actual creative pattern cutting. And um, I think that having that uh, fresh approach, not being from the industry does actually serve me to a degree because I tend to approach things in a more um, just common sense because I don't, I don't know. So, um, you know, what, what I don't know doesn't influence me. I just try and achieve the end goal and the objective. And um, I think that is why I have the business that I do now, because I could see that that was missing, certainly for me anyway, in the UK manufacturing landscape when I went through this AMAS leisure journey. I mean, that's so true. You've got it spot on there because it is it is just one great big project, isn't it, when you're manufacturing a product, a, a product. And I think all too often people that work within textiles, fashion, manufacturing are very creative people who maybe Correct, yeah. yeah, don't have that project management skill. And that's great that you've got that background. Well, I do get asked a lot if I'm a designer, you know, people say, oh, you know, so do you design? A, and I always laugh and say, no, I'm I'm like, I'm terrible on the design. I, like, you know, I, I, I couldn't even sketch for you. I'll tell you what I like and what I don't like and, you know, what I think looks cool. But and I get involved in that in terms of when we are making decisions on sampling and development and fabric choices and trim choices and cut and finish and such like. But that's purely influenced just by watching the trends and social media. Um, But yeah, the you know, the my skill set is very much on the more operational side and um, just making sure that things get done. um, And I let the creative people do the creative things that they are brilliant at brilliant so so a designer comes to you they've got an idea I mean there seems to be a lot of people at the moment looking to make athleisure especially as we've all been in lockdown and everyone's been yeah chilling out yeah. at home in their gym Lounge gear yeah yeah exactly yeah. so they've got an idea maybe it's a in the very early stages what's the first thing that you do when someone comes to you and says I want to make a an athleisure range where do I start um, so I actually start at the end point and I ask them what their intentions are. So um, the strategy is going to be completely dependent on what their aspirations are for their business. So um, if they already have a big following, you know, if they if they have um, an influencer level of following um, or they have an existing business. So there's already people uh, people there that are going to want to buy this product then that's a very different strategy to someone who might come to me who's just dipping their toe in the water and wants to um, create something but they haven't yet built the audience to actually buy it because if you know that there are there are sales guaranteed then it's about 
getting your, yourself from A to B as quickly as, as efficiently as possible. So you can facilitate that stock order. So that might just be that there's been a communication breakdown with um, an overseas factory who you know actually you you do think you can get a good stock order from, but you just want to make sure that the sample is is spot on. You don't want to do the toing and froing, um, you know, to to get to that point. So therefore, what we would be doing for that client is literally just supporting them through the sampling process to make sure that they have an accurate pattern, an accurate sample, um, that their production partner knows exactly what they're making. Um, or if it's a designer who has come up with some conceptual sketches, has some CAD designs, but it's brand new to them and it's a brand new business, then I'll be guiding them down the small batch production route where we'll help them sample and develop. But then I'll help them with 10 units a week, 20 units a week, just to help them to get that momentum going until they're in a position where the business is scaling, which can facilitate them placing a stock order. And that, I guess, is what's kind of led us to this conversation today, because we were talking around um, these big bulk orders that are being placed by Boohoo and such like, which have been in the press. And I'm seeing a lot that that um, potential clients are coming to me expecting that that is the way that they need to do it, where they need to place a big order and and on the back of it, they'll probably get their sampling for free. And that does work in some circumstances where that end bulk amount is needed because the sales are ready to go. But nine times out of 10, I would say that the clients that are approaching me are what I described where it's brand new to them. And actually stock is not the right way to go because um, they just don't know if that stock is going to be sold. And what we all really want to avoid is these big stock orders with not fair working practices, not fair price, which possibly will end up in landfill quite quickly anyway. Yeah. And that that's the bit that I'm really trying to work on the education side. Yeah, I mean, that's so that's so true. I think a lot of designers, they go to certain factories, they go to the wrong factories who then say, well, your minimum order on this is 300, 500 pieces. And then they sort of panic about how they're possibly going to find the cash to invest in totally. 300 pieces of a style. And it is all about testing and testing the market when you first start out. You must get some resistance, though, from some from some designers who don't want to pay for sampling up front. How do you overcome that? That is the biggest challenge, basically, because... Um, we are very much geared towards the sampling and development and the small batch production that, you know, that's our zone of genius, if you like. And unfortunately, I think that there has been a little bit of a perception shift to expecting that sampling work to be done for free, because as we've just discussed, it it's normally followed by a high minimum order quantity. Mm. And what I have to do is when I talk to clients, I I have to explain to them why we do it the way that we do, where I see that the the capital that's available is better spent in developing a product that um, is right, that fits, mm. that is quality, that is completely traceable, that is sustainable, and that has full transparency. And then as we discussed just there, test the market with it, you know, take it out get the consumer feedback, make some sales, get it into the hands of some influencers, really start to build build the brand and get some sales momentum behind you, then, you know, refinements can be made and, um, and those sales can be scaled. And in, in that position, you're in such, you're, that's a much stronger position to then be going out to speak to manufacturers that are larger because they're going to 
know that this product has some legs to it. So yeah, exactly. it's, it's much more it's much more worth their time to actually invest in talking to you as a client because they know that you're going to come back for repeat orders. They're probably going to take you more seriously. They're going to answer your calls and your emails. Um, they're going to know that it's worth their time and money investment to set you up on their production lines. You're probably going to get a better and fairer idea on what the price is per unit. Um, and, you know, they, for them as a business owner, um, they know that they, they don't need to go through that sampling and development process because it's already been done. And that is the biggest time and money drain for them yeah. when they've got their production line set up. All they really want to do is just get the products on there and, and producing rather than yeah. the time drain, which is the sampling. Yeah, I think it's a fantastic service that you're offering. What challenges did you have when you set up the business, knowing nothing about coming from from the fashion textiles sector? Just, I mean, everything was a hurdle. <laughs> and I, like, I've made every single mistake in the book. Um, and I think that's what helps now, because having that experience and being able to help other people avoid some of the pitfalls that I had um I'm glad to do that but yeah I mean to answer your question directly so you know just even the basics terminology I had no idea you know twal what um you know fabric uh, suppliers what just where to even start um and you know I was really fortunate that I had a great team around me who had amazing skills and um helped me overcome each of the challenges but yeah, every single potential challenge has been presented to me. Money, you know, lack of capital, time. Mm. Uh, the, I think the one thing that was in my favour was that I just had this particular set of skills around project management and I understood commerciality um, in terms of getting to market as quickly and efficiently as possible to be able to generate some sales because I knew that cash and sales was going to be the lifeblood of the business. If I wanted to seek investment, that's what they were going to ask me about. You know, if I needed money to pay my bills, that's where it was going to come from. Um, and, and that's the bit that I try and work on with my clients. So like I said earlier, when they come to me, I always want to know what the end point is. And that's, the, that's where I want to get them to just as quickly and as cost effectively as I possibly can. Because, you know, what's a business without sales? That's yeah, exactly. everything. So are there any other pitfalls that that designers fall into? Trying to do too much. Um, so I just, I see huge collections and yeah. I always say, look, let's try and narrow this down to the, the MVP, the minimum viable product. What do you think you can launch your business on? And now even more so with Instagram, you can literally launch a business with a single product and have success. Because it's easy for the consumer to understand, um, you know, it's easy to promote because you just get the same product into lots of different hands and get the influencers out there. Or, or you know, I've talked a lot, obviously, about influencers and social, but, you know, even from like a bricks and mortar point of view, if you're going into a retailer and you're just taking in a single product for them and explaining, you know, like why this single product is so good, that's easy for them to understand as well. It's probably less of a risk for them to put some cash into as well. Yeah. Um, and so that's that that I would say is probably the single biggest thing. And and that leads quite neatly into your question earlier of 
um, you know, the barrier to entry being the cost of the sampling. If we're just sampling one, two, three, four is quite a common number of pieces. That's a lot more um, accessible at that level than trying to sample a collection which is six, 10, 12, 24 pieces. And I mean, I did this. My initial yeah. collection was 32 pieces. And that, <laughs> what was I thinking, you know, trying to do a collection of that size? Now, when a client comes to me, I'm saying, right, what two? Is it a cohort set? Let's mm. just, what can we launch that we can do really quickly and efficiently and get you a high quality product and just get your brand out there? Let's make some sales. Yeah. You know, let's get started. And it's not just lots of different styles within the collection as well. I have sometimes people saying, I want to have a range which um, fits all sizes. So I'm going to go yeah. from petite right yeah. up to yeah. extra large. And you do need to you know, work out what do you stand for? Because actually, if you're going to have that many different sizes as well, you're going to need a, a lot of different models to model your products for you. Totally. And, and also just colorways and, yeah. um, you know, different designs and customization and and um, and you know, I think as well there can there can be a lot of complex elements introduced with um, sublimation printing or dyeing to specific pantones and um, and and again, this is this comes this circles us right back again to um, I think the you know the bench is, benchmark has been set very high with with um, companies um, overseas that that do do a lot of things as standard, which actually take an enormous amount of time and energy and money to set up. Um, and it sort of led us into a false sense that these things are very achievable at mm. a starting point and at a low level. They're definitely yeah. achievable for the big boys who've, who've got, you know, um, big orders to place and, and big audiences to serve. And, and, but, but, you know, for, for when you're just starting out, um, trying to dye lots of different fabrics or trying to get lots of different sublimation templates set up again I'm guilty of this myself it's <laughs> you're overcomplicating it and yeah. you're just putting hurdles and barriers um in your own way really they're all barriers to entry they're stopping you from getting to market yeah and you mentioned the big companies there as well you know they can produce things on a big scale but that also means that if they make mistakes they they make mistakes on a big scale Huge. as well so yeah. if they're you know, all of the discounting and the bargain stores and the ends of lines that are being sold off because someone, a designer or a buyer somewhere made the wrong decision and bought too much of something. You can actually be a lot leaner and a lot more sustainable and less wasteful if you're a small business, just Absolutely. almost producing to order. You've touched on a few things there which are value-led, and that's also something that I really try and narrow down with the clients. What are your values? Why are you doing this? What's your North Star that's guiding you? You know, is it that you are really, really passionate that every raw material is from a recycled source? Um, you know, is it that you do believe in um, avoiding landfill, so therefore we literally just make to order for you? Mm. And I think that's a really important point um or a really important thing for people who are either diversifying into product or starting product businesses to just get clear on before they start to have conversations with you or I um because that I think really helps to guide what the correct strategy is and and what the what the right um composition of the garments is as well yeah yeah and when it comes to printing as well and you mentioned sublimation printing I think there is, there's a lot to be said for 
again, keeping that simple. I mean, do you, for some people that are listening to this might not understand what sublimation printing is because it's particularly important within athleisure, isn't it? So it many is, athleisure. Yeah. Do you want to explain a little bit more how sublimation works and how you can do that on a smaller scale? Yeah, so sublimation is is applying an image to fabric um, using heat. So it's it's like an enormous printer which prints out the image. It can be a photograph, it can be um, artwork, it can be uh, a graphic print and it's printed out on paper through a huge printer and then that is um, laid on top of the fabric and heat is applied which seals the ink and the image into the fabric so it's it's what um, really brightly patterned leggings and mm. um, a lot of like charity running vests that's the method of um, application and and design for them so it does have a great end result especially in sportswear um, and fashion but um, yeah, it, so the two different ways of doing it are to have a repeating print. And that's what I always advise my clients to work with. So we ask them to have the fabric printed. Now, I've got a couple of um, contacts that I work with for that. I'm sure you've got them in your directory, Kate, mm. um, who print the fabric with the repeating pattern. And then we cut and construct it into the garments. What I tried to do when I started was try and have placed print. So I had um, templates set up for each of the garment, which was literally an outline of the pattern piece. So if we were making leggings, it was like, you know, um, the the front and the back of the leggings in a template. And then we had, we would fill that with print, which was like in specific positions. And oh yeah. my goodness, the like headache around Yeah, trying shrinkage. to get it in the right place. Oh my goodness. So you had to get <laughs> things to line up. Then each different fabric performed differently when the heat and the ink was applied to it. So you had to allow for a centimetre of, shrink, of shrinkage, half a centimetre. I, I, I was tearing my hair out with it. So again, that's just something that I've learned. So now when clients do have a really highly print, like highly decorative element to their garments, I always try and steer them away from the placed print and towards the repeating pattern which can be just as effective but it's just so much easier to work with because we don't need to take shrinkage into account then we already have the fabric and we just lay the pattern pieces on and we're able to cut that fabric to to what we need from there and you know what it's advice like that that you're giving to clients that saves them a whole load of money in the long run doesn't it so, yeah, and from going grey early as yeah. well. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, exactly. That sort of knowledge and experience and and how you can offer, you know, ways to advise how their design could change in order to make it easier for production. I, I think that's what's great about manufacturing in the UK. That's one, one of the big advantages, I think, is that you've got that direct connection to discuss these sorts of possibilities with a manufacturer on a regular basis that you maybe you well I know from my own personal experience you lose that if you're working with a factory that's at the other side of the world yeah definitely and and I guess you know I touched upon it the communication um but and the advice and the avoiding the mistakes but, oh, oh, sorry <laughs> someone's got something to say yeah I think it might be just <laughs> someone passing by the front door um but also just um you know for me like especially um just adding that little bit of project management element into it. So um, I know that it is an investment upfront into, into the sampling, but 
Um, I, I always say to clients, try and look at it as an investment into the business rather than into the product. Because I think if you were trying to um, rationalize it in terms of product and unit cost, it's, it probably isn't going to make sense there. But it's the same as you would invest into the other assets in your business, like your website, mm, like yeah. your logo, like your branding, like your letterhead, your compliment slips, your swing tags. Um, you know, think of it in that terms in those terms that you're actually, you're creating intellectual property assets by having your own patterns and having your own bespoke shapes that are unique to you and your business. And ultimately that that's on your bottom line, you know, whether it's written into the accounts or not, it, it is what, um, if you were to sell the business in the future, it's part of the asset value of your company as well. Yeah. Yeah. And actually a lot of people I speak to don't actually own their patterns when they contact me and say, I want to reshore my production to the UK. And I say, have you got the original patterns? Because they want to continue with the same styles, best-selling styles. Yeah. They have no ownership of their patterns. I know. And that's a real grey area because, I mean, how often do we see something that's so popular for one brand that then immediately is just ripped off by another? Um, And, and yeah, I I get that a little bit, you know, with clients that come to me who, who they want me to basically recreate the products for them because they they have had success with a, a manufacturer elsewhere but that's no longer open to them but um it means that they are effectively starting from scratch because they they don't have those patterns so we we do have to go through the process of of sampling and developing again for them mm. so how long a time scale do you give someone if a designer comes to you and they have the very first ideas of putting an athleisure brand together how long is that time scale from when they first pick up the phone and have that conversation with you to when they get their first product on sale um well i'm going to give you the politician answer and say like how long is a piece of string <laughs> yes, but okay. uh, but being realistic um it's we the way our service works is that we go through twirling first so that's in a, a twirl is like a first draft of the garment it's indicative of what the garment will look like we ask for feedback from the client on that and we just make that in something that is similar to the fabric that they're probably going to use then we progress to first sample and that first sample should be in the fabric that will be the end product um, and then we do a fitting at that stage and then we progress on to second sample which should really be pretty much there you know 99 to 100% um accurate to the production um product but the the difficulty is that each of those stages has decisions attached to it you know so just decisions on um fit decision on raw material um sourcing so um i always say that you should allow up to 3 months for that um just yeah. in terms of slippage and and just for other suppliers getting product over to us so the the fabric the trim and such like but realistically if everything was already in place which sometimes it is you know clients come to us and they they're set on the fabric they they they've got everything ready to go all they need us to do is just the practical part you know it can be short as short as a few weeks because if mm. the client is on it and they're making the decisions and we're getting the fittings booked straight in then you know there's there's nothing to slow us down we we with with development it's it's a lot easier than small batch production because we can just schedule each phase of the job into the work the workflow um so you know if we've done a fitting and then we've got adjustments to make to the pattern i can just squeeze that into the schedule of the team whereas with small batch production because the machines are then tied up with the cutting and construction. We tend to book that about three weeks in advance. 
Um, yeah. So, um, so to to give you an answer, um, it, my my time for sampling and development is two days. So if we literally worked back to back and had the fabric and the client was on hand for fitting, we could have that done within two days. But being being realistic, um, it could be between a month and three months, I would say, normally. Yeah. I actually think three months is still very good as well to to get a, a product off the ground. I know some people that have spent six months to a year. Yeah. But absolutely. that's usually because they have those 32-piece collections. Yeah, and, and <laughs> yeah, that's all dependent on how many pieces there are if we're doing them yeah. all together. Some clients come and they've got three or four, but they want to stagger them. So they want us to develop something first and get it launched and then develop something else. And I also think that's a really great model because, you know, um, now fashion's becoming less about the seasons and because of social media and and you know, being direct to the client and direct to the consumer, um, I have to be careful with my terms. So client obviously is who <laughs> I work with, consumer is the yeah. person, the end person who buys the product. But um, you know, now you need to have regular launches because those seasons are kind of disappearing a little bit. So so I always say to the clients, like, you know, even if money isn't allowing to develop all six or all eight of your pieces right now, let's do two and launch them and then let's do the next two and then you've got something else to launch in another another couple of months and then you've got something else to launch and and if you launch everything all in one go then you haven't got a lot to talk about you know you need to keep finding new things to to launch to drive the sales so Hmm. yeah things have changed they've changed a lot within fashion in terms of seasonality even over the last year haven't they yeah with the not just sort of being seasonal drops but now kind of constantly smaller updates and non-seasonal products which again is less wasteful yeah massively and and because you it's much more reactive so um you can you know people are reacting and businesses are reacting a lot more quickly to um trends and um and not in a not in a fast fashion way just in a like oh wow this this you know this is this trend is happening right now and like you know let's work with that um and I, I think that that's great because certainly with digital platforms, having regular launches is a really effective sales model because it gives that cash injection into the business quickly. And it also does away with the um, the dead stock because, you know, planning so far in advance, something that you think is going to be really popular for a season which is half a year away or a year away, um, you know, you avoid it being a total flop if you've ordered huge amounts and then you bring it to market and the time's passed and yeah, and hopefully exactly. that uh, kind of will start to combat a little bit of the um the landfill issue that you know is still there at the moment yeah yeah definitely um fabric is is quite often a sticking point as in you can't always get all the fabrics you need from the UK do you help your your clients to fine fabrics do you have preferred suppliers of fabrics that you work with and and what do you think of the sort of availability of the sorts of fabrics that can be used for at leisure i do yeah i do have some preferred suppliers um and i you know i think that uh, well let's put it this way i i've not struggled on any project to find um the right raw material something that we are happy to work with something that the client is 
um, satisfied with. So predominantly that is a UK supply chain for that. Um, we do work with um, some suppliers overseas, um, but we try if we can to go via the UK distributor. So it's still, yeah. um, you know, supporting UK businesses. And, um, and we do in some cases have to buy from um, uh, sources which are not UK orientated but you know again it comes back to what the value of the business it, the values of the business are that we're working with so it might be that they're not that they yeah they're really keen to work with me because I'm UK based and and they like that element to it but it might be that actually they're just more passionate that the fabric is recycled and therefore yeah. the only way that we can get that is by going into Italy, for instance. Mm. Um, and and yes, it might be that we can't go via a UK distributor. We need to go directly to the mill. But, um, you know, we we still view that as being um, as sustainable as possible because if we can, we'll we'll complement it with UK source trim, or um, you know, we'll I'll I'll try and minimise the carbon footprint wherever we can, basically. Um, but but I yeah I I do assist my clients with that. It is kind of part of the package that that we provide, and I don't do it on their behalf because I I also think it's really important that my clients have a good understanding of what their unit cost is. So. I much prefer that they deal directly with the mill or the fabric suppliers so they know exactly what they're paying per meter and um, they can have a really transparent costing that way um, and know exactly what every element of their unit price is made up of. And I think that that's really powerful to know um, as a business owner. Yeah, definitely. So you must do open costings for your clients then, giving them a sort of itemised breakdown of where every part of the cost of yeah. making the garment comes in I set them up a little spreadsheet um when we get to the end of the process and and I, I put in our time so they know what our time is for the cutting mm. and the constructing and I'll put in an like a, a rough guide to the meterage of the fabric in terms of what I think that they're paying um you know sometimes they can get a better price obviously if they're buying in bulk so I guide of what what the price has been during sampling and development and then I give them that in an open excel format so they can edit it themselves so um, they can adjust any of the fields in terms of trim price meter price for the fabric um, so they themselves are in control of what their costing is and um, they know what they're paying me for the time and then they know what they're paying out to the suppliers as well. Yeah that's I mean that's fantastic as a designer you need that transparency about costs because only then can you truly understand how the changes that you make in terms of the design or the quantities affects the final the final cost and therefore your final profit as well totally yeah and you need to mm. know if you're if one of your strategy if you know part of your strategy is to approach retailers you need to know what your margin is there so if you don't know accurately where you might be able to cut a little bit of cost because ultimately a retailer isn't going to pay you the same as an end consumer is um, then you need to be able to look at your costing and say right well if I'm going to go for this retail order which is going to give me bulk um, but you know perhaps I'm going to have to compromise a little bit on my fabric or I might need to take that panel out to just make this simpler so it's quicker to construct you know you need to be in control um, so that you can make 
informed decisions about where your product ends up, whether that's direct to the consumer or whether you do business to business sales. Yeah, because I think it works out, you know, approximately for every pound on your cost price, you're looking at five pounds that the retailer will be selling it for. So if you can take off a pound's worth of labour time or fabric cost, that's five pounds less that you can sell it for to the end consumer, especially if you're wholesaling, which can make a massive difference and can be the, def- the difference between your you know business being competitive or just looking pricey. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, it's, uh, as I say, I just think it's important to be fully educated and informed as the business owner um and um i you know i i again we're circling right back to why we started this conversation but you know when when i saw the article that you posted about boohoo and the one pound 80 price um, Mm. for the bike shorts you know i knew instantly that for me that just isn't even anywhere near what I could make that product for like I know I could probably couldn't even cut the fabric to to that kind of of a cost and I think that's why it's really important that I go through that bit with the clients that I work with as well so that they have a really good understanding so that they can compare and contrast and if they get a price quote in from a factory they need to know if that is realistic or not you know i exactly. want i want i know when i get a price whether that if there's something off or not and i think you know i say to my clients i don't want you to be with me forever you know i want to do your sampling and development in your small batch but i want your business to grow I want your business to scale. I want to be helping you to find the bigger manufacturer to make these products for you, um, you know, in larger amounts because your sales dictate that. Um, And so I want them to feel when they go off to do that and start to get quotes in from factories that they can understand if the costing isn't open, whether it seems fair and ethical. Um, And I think only by going through that process at the start can you have a benchmark on that? Um, and I think that's that's the really important bit that we all need to educate ourselves around. Yeah, I mean, I think everyone in the industry, when they see those prices that Boohoo are charging for some items, that they can't possibly be paying staff, well, not even a living wage, but certainly not a minimum wage at all. The, the, the figures don't add up. And everyone in the industry knows that and However fast and efficient your factory is, it's pretty impossible to make a lot of the products that they sell at those prices that they sell them for. It's just ridiculous. And I'm really glad that they've now been called out for it. Yeah. It, and that they've been, you know, Labour behind the label are specifically asking them to be more transparent. And, you know, that's so important, for, especially for UK manufacturers. There's so many fantastic people out there like yourself who are super transparent to their clients. And I think the more that manufacturers can do that, it actually shames the ones that don't do it. And, and it makes people start questioning, why aren't you transparent about where your factories are and how much you're paying them? I just think we have the, a duty yeah. of care yeah. um, as, the, as business owners. So, you know, obviously I understand as well, when you've got a business to run, you, you need, you need orders. You do, you know, you, you want to, you want to 
keep the roof <laughs> over the business's head. You, you know, you need to pay your supplier bills. Um, you need to pay your team. I get it. You know, the pressures, gosh, I've just, you know, started a small business from scratch. I, I've, I have, you know, had horrendous moments with cash flow, and I, I get it. You know, you need, you need to get the money in the door. Um, but I think as business owners, like brand owners, then that's where we need to come in and we need to say like, look, this is great. And that unit cost seems fantastic, but you know, we, we need to make sure that it's fair, that, that it, you know, it's, it's a price that, that we're comfortable paying that we can go to sleep at night and know that, we're paying a fair price for the time and the work that's going into that so that those people that are making it are being paid fairly, that they're working in good conditions. And, um, you know, that's the bit that I, I think we have to each take the responsibility for. So not just see pound signs and think, oh my goodness, wow, I, you know, I can get my units for this price. Wow. I'm going to make huge yeah. margin and huge profit. Okay. Yeah, that's great. But is that sustainable? Can that, you know, can that factory really keep a happy workforce at that price? You know, can we, can we make profit and, and all see our businesses growing together? You know, at at each stage, we all need to be getting a fair price, a fair price from the consumer for the product, a fair price for, you know, the sampling and development, a fair price for the individual constructed units. It, it has to be right at all stages through the, through the chain. It's not fair that one part of that is profiteering at the expense of another part. Yeah, exactly. Uh, I, and I get people contacting me saying, can you find me a cheap manufacturer? And it's like, delete. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Don't even use the word cheap because what... How can that be your criteria? What about a quality manufacturer or a reliable manufacturer or an ethical manufacturer, but a cheap manufacturer? So those are always a delete straight in the bin. Yeah, it's um, and, and you're barking up the wrong tree asking me for a cheap manufacturer because that just shows where your priorities lie. Well, I think you asked me earlier about clients and you know whether there was ever a a struggle around the 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 cost, you know, the sampling mm. and development cost. And I just, I'm, I just stick to my guns. Um, you know, when clients approach me, I get the same questions of, um, you know, just going straight to unit price. What's this unit price going to be? And I never discount our services. Um, you know, I never cut corners or make it cheaper for some. And I, I just, that's our price, you know, take it or leave it. And, and to be honest, the clients that I want to work with are the ones that are happy to pay because they see the value in doing it properly and they see the value in investing into the assets in their business. And I mean, you know, I, four years down the line with mine, um, had some conversations last year with a much larger manufacturer around licensing out my brand and my products to them so that they could add it to their portfolio. And, you know, that, that is why I spent all those blood you know, all that money, those blood, that blood, sweat, tears on developing those products, which at times I wondered why I was doing it. But ultimately it made no financial sense. It made no life sense. Um, but, you know, the conversations like that are the ones that make it worthwhile because I've created something that has value to another business, which might at some stage 
be licensed from me. I really hope we can continue those conversations coming out of the COVID time. Yeah. Um, you know, I might sell that in the future, which, you know, will be a cash injection into my business. Um, and, and it's freeing up my time now to serve others. Um, but, you know, ultimately that when, when clients do bulk at, at paying out for sampling and development, unfortunately they're they're not the ones that I want to work with um, and because they are the ones who just are looking for the best possible unit price and that goes against all of my sustainable um you know values and goals and um and that's not the mission that I'm on so they're not the people that I want to work and partner with so exactly so you're you're obviously a woman that likes to plan things Amy what are your plans for the business for the next five years I'm sure you've got a plan yeah, um, so I, I'm really, really enjoying what we're doing right now. Um, I love our work. Um, we're a team of six um, and I have um, all different skills. So I just intend to, to, to do more of what we're doing right now, which is the private label sampling development, small batch production. Um, I don't have aspirations to grow into a big factory because I believe that they, that should be left to the people that do that really well. And we have some amazing big factories in the UK. Um, and, you know, I hope that I support their businesses in terms of bringing clients to them that are ready for manufacturing on a larger scale and, and uh, you know, take some of that sampling and development headache away from them because we've already done that. So mm. I'm quite comfortable in the niche that we're in right now. And that's the one I'd like to develop. Um, something that I would really like to explore, which I picked up with the UKFT, so the UK Fashion and Textiles Network, um, or uh, the government body. Kate, you'll know better whether that's the right yeah, term. UKFT, UKFT, yeah, UKFT. UKFT <laughs> um, is is you know delivering um, more apprenticeships. So um, Jenny at Great. Fashion Enter is doing that fantastically well in the south. Um, we're not well catered for in the north. So that's something that I would I'd really like to explore. And I'd started opening some conversations with the universities locally to see whether we might be able to support them by offering the apprenticeships which could be um, a step into the degrees or even an add-on to the degree courses because you know we have a few fantastic universities here in the northeast Mm. so um so that's something that um potentially I'd like to to explore as another angle of the business and um that with a particular focus on the vocational so the the um machining and the the pattern cutting you know the actual hands-on practical skills that that complement the design so um so that's something and as I just mentioned you know for me personally um I did create a brand and products that go with that and I'd love to see that see that develop and scale beyond um the resources that I have available to me and um and that's the conversations that have been opened with a much larger manufacturer who are successfully um building direct-to-consumer brands brilliant yeah fantastic good plans yeah yeah it's uh, no all I was going to say was just you know it all sounds wonderful now but to anybody who is just kind of starting out on the journey or partway through the journey um you know I, I I just please don't be fooled for a second and think that this has been easy it's been the hardest and most difficult thing I've ever done and um, I'm, you know, there's been many times that I thought that I should just give up and a lot of difficult conversations that have had to be had along the way. But, um, you know, I'm so glad that I did persevere. And I do feel like coming into financial year five, that things are just starting to to kind of the tide is, the tide is just starting to turn for me a little bit now. So, um, 
yeah and i and i think that probably also just swings with the um the the focus on sustainable manufacturing and uk manufacturing which obviously you know you're doing an amazing job of champion <laughs> championing kate so have you noticed final question have you noticed um an upswing recently in the amount of people that are specifically looking to make in the UK or looking for a manufacturer that can make sustainably in the UK? Yes, absolutely. Categorically. Mm. So, um, you know, March went very quiet um, as the onset of COVID happened. And then um, April and May were were almost um, frozen. I think people were very unsure. But then June and uh more so in July, it's um inquiries have just gone through the roof. Um I think the PPE disaster has really um helped to highlight the the problems with um being so heavily reliant on overseas supply chains. And I think it's also just made people quite patriotic as well and want to really support the businesses and the economy in this country. So um yeah, I'm I'm prospecting a huge amount at the minute, lots of Zoom calls and and just helping clients to scope their projects through. And that's fantastic because the more work that comes into us, the more work I can put into my team and the more work that I can pass to the raw material suppliers and the more work that is going to be there in the pipeline for the bigger manufacturers. So um yeah, it's it's good. I'm I'm enjoying Brilliant. things right now. Keep up the great work. Thank you very much, Amy. Fantastic. I will will put links in the show notes for the podcast for where people can can find you. You're obviously on our website, Make It British, in our directory, in our Um, manufacturer's directory. That's effective because people definitely find me and they tell me that they've come via you. So that's brilliant. Well, that's the aim. Send the work to the manufacturers. Wonderful. I think you're doing an amazing job, Amy. Thank you very much for spending time with me today. Oh, no, thank you so much, Kate. I really do appreciate that. Thank you for your time. Cheers, bye. Bye. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Make It British podcast. I make an episode every Tuesday, plus there's bonus episodes occasionally. So make sure you subscribe in your favourite podcast app. And if you're looking to find British-made brands or UK manufacturers, check out the directory on the Make It British website at makeitbritish.co.uk forward slash directory. Thank you for listening. Bye bye.